Hello and welcome back. Today I'm talking to the great Toby Young. Toby, thank you very much for coming on and um, we want to hear a little bit about your, your lockdownskeptic.org project. So thank you for coming along. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Douglas. Um, we were told in February, March, April that we had this horrific new killer disease, COVID. And we were told that the only way of dealing with it was to lock down. There were these demands to lock down. Um, how, how's it working out? Has, has lockdown been effective? No, lockdown hasn't been effective. Uh, I think one important thing to bear in mind is that um, locking down an entire population, the healthy as well as the sick, had only been tried once before in the history of mankind as a way of trying to mitigate the impact of a pandemic. And that was in 2009 in Mexico. Um, Mexico locked down in 2009 and then abandoned its lockdown after I think something like 20 days because of the mounting social and economic costs. Uh, the WHO in 2019 uh, published a paper uh, in which they said if the, if the world faces a pandemic, locking down entire populations is not the right thing to do. Um, the British government in its uh, 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 pandemic preparedness strategy uh, published in 2011 uh, said locking down entire populations is not the way to mitigate the impact of a pandemic. Never been done before or, or rather only been done before once was a disaster when it was tried. Uh, British government WHO recommended not doing it. So why did everyone start doing it? Yeah, why, um, do we end up, why do we end up in this mess? Well, I think that um, uh, it was a series of unfortunate events. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, uh, the, the, when the virus um, uh, initially broke out in, in, in Wuhan, China, um, various, at, the, at, the, at the end of last year, various doctors raised the alarm. They were immediately rounded up, arrested, and told that if they said anything more about it, um, they'd suffer dire consequences by the Chinese communist authorities. Um, uh, 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 and then when it, became, uh, when, when it became impossible for the Chinese authorities to suppress the news that there had been a new coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, uh, they then overreacted because they were so embarrassed about having uh, initially suppressed the information. So they overreacted by locking up uh, everyone in an entire province. And I mean, I mean locking up. They behaved like you would expect an authoritarian you, 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 government. You, you behave, you, they behaved exactly like you'd expect a dictatorial communist country to behave. Um, you know, every, every, if you, if you, everyone was tested. If you tested positive, regardless of whether you were symptomatic, you were carted off to a so-called purpose-built hospital where you were imprisoned until you tested negative. And if you tested negative, you were essentially boarded up in your home with the police delivering kind of ready meals onto your doorstep. I mean, it was unbelievably draconian and illiberal. As you say, one would have thought the only it could only be done in a dic, 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 dictatorship um, uh, but instead but, but the WHO which is essentially in the pocket of the Chinese authorities said this is marvelous this is exactly how you should respond uh, to a pandemic the Chinese authorities have got it exactly right everyone else should do this uh, and then everyone else then started doing it uh, there was a great paper um, written by a group of researchers at the OECD which looked at the gap 
between um, different countries locking down in March. And they all locked down within about, a two, within about two weeks of each other. There wasn't any time for any proper cost-benefit analysis to be done. Uh, world leaders just started copying one another. You know, it was, it was peer pressure. Uh, and, 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 and then journalists in that sort of rather bovine way that we see with the broadcast journalists would demand lockdown. I, I remember listening to them demanding that, you know, people be prevented from sunbathing and that park benches be shut. Um, and it's sort of just uh, the, yeah. a dynamic of its own. But here's the thing. We're all familiar with those graphs we see that show the trajectory of, of, of the various waves of this, this virus. And we've been constantly told that we've got to do various things by compulsion in order to flatten the curve or, or adjust the, 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 the rate of trajectory. But is the fundamental flaw of Western policymakers a presumption that it's what governments say that influences that trajectory? Aren't there a whole myriad of things that influence that trajectory of which locking the population down is probably only pretty marginal, if, if, if at all? We don't even know if it has a marginal impact, Douglas. I think that might be overstating it. Um, various pieces of uh, analyses have been done looking at uh, comparing the COVID mortality rate in those countries that locked down with those countries that didn't, like Sweden, Belarus, Tanzania. Um, uh, various analyses comparing uh, the mortality rate in the 43 US states which locked down with the seven that didn't. And there's just no signal in the noise. Uh, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any pattern, no correlation. There's no correlation whether between the severity of the lockdown and trajectory of the disease. That's a, that's a second point. Now, the first point is there's no correlation between whether a country locked down at all uh, and the COVID mortality rate. And then the second point is that if you look at the severity of the lockdown in those countries and US states that did lock down, there's no signal in that noise either. There's no correlation between the severity of the lockdown and uh, COVID mortality. Um, uh, but there is, of course, a correlation between the severity of the lockdown and the economic harm uh, that the lockdown has caused. So the more severely countries lock down, the greater the economic damage. Uh, but it, the, the two great counter examples are, are at one end, Sweden, which didn't lock down, um, uh, lower deaths per million than the UK, and Peru, uh, the country which has imposed the most severe lockdown after China, um, has the highest uh, uh, COVID mortality rate in the world. Uh, so there's, there's just no signal in that noise at all. There's no evidence that lockdowns are even slightly effective. We, we hear a lot about Sweden, and I was listening to a debate the other day where people were talking about Sweden, and, and someone said, well, hang on, Although we in Britain had a lockdown and were told by government we had to do various things, the Swedes, being sensible people, kind of voluntarily did what we were doing anyway without being made to do it. Um, I mean, perhaps they did, but surely that's an argument for actually letting ordinary people make the judgments and assess the risks for themselves. Um, could we have not had a, yeah. a sort of a, a, a common sense voluntary lockdown where people, you know, Elderly people perhaps decided that actually they weren't going to go and see relatives and you know, older folk or the vulnerable decided actually they would avoid crowds and get other people to do their shopping. Would, wouldn't that, that, that's basically the Swedish approach, isn't it? Yeah, and that was our approach until Boris panicked and you turned. Um, actually, if you look at the data, um, it shows that um, uh, the R number uh, fell to below one a few days before a full lockdown was imposed. Even Chris Whitty has admitted this. Um, uh, uh, and, and what Boris did on March 16th 
um, at the urging of his scientific advisors, uh, was to um, impose some much more modest social distancing measures, such as banning large gatherings, um, recommended the shielding of the elderly and the vulnerable, recommended we wash our hands, socially distance, don't leave home unless we have to. But far short, pretty much exactly what the Swedish government recommended their population did. And the, and the advice from SAGE at that point was, let's wait and see if these measures are effective. And we, and we learned subsequently that they were effective, that actually transmission began to dip significantly as soon as those more modest voluntary social distancing protocols began to be observed by the British population. Uh, there, was no, there was no scientific reason to abandon that strategy and suddenly impose a full lockdown, which is what happened on March 23rd. Um, it was a, an entirely political decision. Uh, there was one really interesting detail in, a, in an FT analysis of the weeks leading up to lockdown. It, 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 it had a detail from the, the uh, COBRA meeting, uh, which was chaired by Michael Gove, not Boris, uh, in which it was announced that a full lockdown was being imposed. It actually surprised Nicola Sturgeon, surprised Sadiq Khan, who were both present at that meeting. They didn't know it was coming. Uh, it was a sudden, unexpected U-turn. Uh, and um, apparently Jesse Norman piped up and said, have you done a, a cost-benefit analysis? Now, you would expect a responsible government to have done a cost-benefit analysis. Is the harm we're likely to prevent as a result of imposing these draconian measures likely to uh, be, be greater than the harm we almost certainly are going to cause by imposing these measures? So a perfectly good question. Have you done a cost-benefit analysis? He, was, he got blank stares. Uh, Michael Gove, um, uh, it hadn't even occurred to the government to do a cost-benefit analysis. It wasn't about saving lives. It was an entirely, purely political decision. Toby, I, I've followed what you've been saying on lockdownskeptics.org, and I've been listening to some of the superb commentary provided by YouTube commentators, seldom by the mainstream media. And to me, you've won the argument slam dunk. You've, you've provided incredibly powerful empirical evidence that casts real doubt on public policy. Is it having any impact? Are you talking to a brick wall? Are they on receive mode? It, it feels to me as if there's a sort of impervious stupidity, analogous with the sort of the, 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 the folly of central bankers 20 years ago. Um, are, are you able to get through to these people? Um, I think, I mean, it does often feel like um, uh, you're banging your head against a brick wall. Um, and uh, presenting a bunch of flat earthers with kind of incontrovertible proof that the earth is in fact round. And um, they're just, as you say, uh, not on receive mode, they're just on broadcast mode. Um, but I do think it's beginning to get through. I think particularly uh, uh, to conservative MPs. My impression from the correspondence I have with conservative MPs, and quite a lot of them read Lockdown Skeptics, is that about 80% now of backbench Tory MPs are lockdown skeptics. Um, and um, I do think that if the government tries to impose any more draconian restrictions and puts them before parliament, I think uh, they're likely to face a major rebellion. They'll try and avoid doing that, but the more they avoid doing that, the more the resentment builds. You, you talk about them being lockdown skeptics. I remember for 20 or 30 years listening to Tory MPs explaining to me how they were Euro skeptics and skeptical about integration into the European Union. It took them quite a long time to do something about it. And as I'm sure you remember, they needed one or two rather uh, vociferous little nudges along the way. Now, there is... Well, uh, it's funny you should say that, Doug, I'm hoping that um, 
a Tory MP uh, defects to an anti-lockdown party. Um, uh, and that gives them the kick in the pants they need. Do you know, talking about um, kick in the pants, um, I, I think one of the real game changers in this could weirdly be um, someone a long, long way away from the UK, a long, long way from Europe, actually the governor of South Dakota. I don't know if you've come across her, but she's called Kirsty Noam. And she produced this one minute little video. I'm gonna play an extract of it during, during this when editing it. A, a one minute video where she explains the science-based steps that she took to tackle the lockdown, to tackle the virus in South Dakota and how she did it in a sensible way that brought people with her and was business friendly. And it's, it's incredibly powerful stuff. And I, I wonder if, if you know, even, even policymakers in this country have Twitter accounts, even they watch YouTube, even they will, will see what the governor of South Dakota is doing. And if they're not prepared to listen to you, if they're not prepared to listen to Swedes, um, I hope they might actually listen to what a, a, a common sense uh, approach and leadership looks like. Um, uh, just on that, Douglas, I mean, uh, uh, South Dakota has been, I mean, she's been fantastic. And um, South Dakota amazing? is the I'm a, Sweden. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge United fan States. of her. I, yeah, yeah. Can you carry on. Um, uh, but actually, the, 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 the COVID mortality rate in the seven US states, including South Dakota, but didn't lock down, is actually lower than in the 43 that did. But the argument appears to have been won in the White House. Um, Scott Atlas effectively endorsed the uh, Great Barrington Declaration yesterday. This is the declaration made by uh, Sunitra Gupta, um, uh, Michael Kuldorf, and uh, Jay Bhattacharya, um, uh, essentially recommending um, that we all follow the Swedish strategy. Um, uh, and, and that now has been endorsed, I think, by the White House. And I think that if Donald Trump wins the US presidential election, that will become the national policy of the United States, which will be, I think that, that, will, have, that will make a real difference. That'll have a real impact on the rest of the world. Now, I, I know you're pushed for time, and so I don't want to sort of um, labor along too much, but I, I just want to finish with a sort of broader observation. Several years ago, we found this economic catastrophe with banking failure, interest rates have been kept really low, central bankers who had told us they had abolished boom and bust suddenly were saying, actually, we've tanked the banks, we're gonna have to borrow billions, government expenditure is gonna go up, your kids are gonna be indebted for a bailout to banks. Um, and, and I was left thinking, hang on, people with spreadsheets and economists, professional economists with spreadsheets are profoundly dangerous when they're put in charge of public policy. And yet we see a similar phenomenon. It's not economists, it's epidemiologists with spreadsheets. And they are being allowed to do things that frankly, in no liberal, free, democratic society should they be allowed to do. Is, is there not a real danger that once this is over, regardless of what people are saying they want the government to do now, people look back on this and they think, hang on, we must be run by idiots, dangerous idiots, idiots with PhDs and Excel spreadsheets who think they understand more than they know. If, if they're so profoundly wrong on something like tackling COVID, how can we trust them on a national curriculum? How can we trust them to keep our country safe? How can we trust them on defense? How can we trust them on international relations? I mean, if they can't get this right, if they can't see the evidence presented by South Dakota and Sweden, if, if it takes them six months to ask the, the, the kind of questions that I know you've been asking for at least five months, um, are we not in danger of actually ending up with a, a profoundly disaffected 
public who realizes that actually, you know, like in The Wizard of Oz, the people that run us aren't wizards. They're confused middle-aged old men who don't know what they're doing. Well, the, 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 the incompetence of our masters, um, whether the politicians or their scientific advisors or the kind of diaspora of public health experts and pangendrums kind of appearing, popping up in television studios every day, their, their, their incompetence, their mishandling of this crisis has been staggering. Even someone as cynical as me, I think, has been shocked by the sheer ineptitude of the ruling class, not just here, but across the world. And I think if one good thing comes out of this, it will be kind of mass disillusionment um, with the so-called expertise of our masters. Um, they, it's, it's the biggest, it's the most catastrophic public policy error in the history of mankind. It dwarfs everything else. The collateral damage done by the mismanagement of this crisis is going to be enormous and we're going to be living with it for decades. I mean, one fact which, which came out recently, Douglas, I don't know if you noticed this, but the WHO said they estimated that 10% of the world's population had now been infected. Uh, by coronavirus. That's 750,000 people, um, sorry, 750 million people. So 1 million people roughly have died so far. That means that the COVID-19 has an infection fatality rate of 0.13%, which is almost identical to that of seasonal flu. We have essentially destroyed the world uh, in order to mitigate the impact of seasonal flu. It is just staggering. So let's hope that we never entrust our fates to these idiots ever again. Toby, it's thanks to people like you, often unacknowledged by official dome, cold-shouldered by the so-called experts. It's people like you who explain why it is that we eventually correct these catastrophic public policy errors. So well done for what you're doing. How many people are you now getting on your website um, every week? It must be tens yeah, of it, hundreds it, of thousands. It, no, I, I started it in April um, and uh, we've had over 4 million unique visitors so far and we get about 50,000 visitors a day. Yeah. I salute you. Well done. Keep on the good work and thank you so much for coming on. All the best. Thanks, Toby. Been a pleasure. And though we knew very little about the virus in those early days, here's what we did know. We knew that Secretary Kim Malsam Risden and her team at the Department of Health were among the very best in the country. We knew that we had some of the finest medical professionals in the country, and we knew that together we were going to find a way to get through this. We turned to the science, to the data, and to the facts to get a handle on what was happening on the ground here in South Dakota. We asked the chief executives and chief medical officers at Avira, Monument, and Sanford to help us understand this virus. And then we asked South Dakotans to be extra diligent about their personal hygiene and to stay home if they were sick. For two months, we held nearly daily press briefings to share all of the information that we had about this virus. In other words, as a community, we got to work. With the help of our medical professionals and the South Dakota National Guard, we ramped up our hospital capacity. We started finding ways to get all of our supplies distributed. Our schools moved to an online instruction model, and our restaurants, our cafes, they moved to curbside pickup. Our, social pe our people social distanced, and in many cases, they stayed home. And I want to remind you all of this because while we were working together and we were preparing as a state, many other states were taking a very different approach. Some ordered their citizens to shelter in place, ordered their businesses to lock down, and ordered their churches to close. 
Some even sent nursing home patients who had the virus back to their facilities. The mainstream media told us that these steps had to be taken to slow down the spread of the virus. And day after day, night after night, they insisted that every single decision I was making was wrong, that I was foolish to trust my people. And I was even sillier to respect the oaths that I took. They told me I should shut my state down. Now, as all of you might imagine, these last seven months at times can get a little bit lonely. But earlier this week, one very prominent reporter on the national level sent me a note that said, Governor, if you hadn't stood against the lockdowns, we'd have no proof of just how useless they really have been. The work of what we are doing wasn't just about me, and it wasn't just about you. It was about the team at the Department of Health, the countless medical professionals across the state. It was teachers, law enforcement officers, grocers, small business owners, moms, dads, grandparents, you name it. It was every single one of your constituents, the people of South Dakota, that made our approach work. We all know that the science tells us we cannot stop this virus. Our goal from day one was to slow down the spread and to free up hospital capacity for those who need higher levels of care, and we accomplished that. Even with a recent uptick of cases across the Midwest and South Dakota, only 10% of hospital capacity is taken up with COVID patients. And according to the senior leadership at Avera, Monument, and Sanford, they have greatly improved treatment. Today, most of the people who are hospitalized for COVID are not getting as sick. They're not staying as long in the hospital, which is outstanding news. In addition to the healthcare side of this equation, we're also closely monitoring the social and the economic ramifications of the virus. I recently had the chance to visit with a single mom. She had two little girls. She lives in another state, uh, and her state has been locked down. Those young girls have been doing 100% distance learning for months. This mom is working full-time from home, and she is struggling. At first, she could balance her work. She could do what she needed to do to help her kids with school. But now, it seems like this horrible situation is never going to end. I could hear the fatigue in her voice. I could see the anxiety in her face. She was fed up. She was angry, and she was in need of relief. My heart hurt listening to her tell her story. And it's just one of many like it. From moms and dads to small business owners and their employees, I've had a chance to visit with a lot of South Dakotans and a lot of Americans across this country that are tired and they're in need of relief. COVID-19 has posed challenges for South Dakota too, but we took a different path. We gave our people the freedom to avoid impossible situations like that single mom faced that I visited with. In South Dakota, we didn't take a one-size-fits-all approach, and the results have been incredible. We had the fewest low-income job losses of any state in the region, and we've already recovered those losses. Our unemployment rate is the fourth lowest in America, already back down to 4.8%. When the virus first hit, every single state's economy shrunk, but our state had the second-smallest losses. We closed the 2020 budget year with a $19 million surplus, and our general fund revenues are up 8.7% so far this fiscal year. Because of the path that we took, a surge of people want to move to South Dakota.